Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... What's the point of a bunch of gay guys sitting around talking about being gay? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by... Father Philip Bochansky. I am a priest of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and the executive director of Courage International. Courage International is a Catholic apostolate which offers support for those who experience same-sex attraction and their loved ones. Thank you for joining us, Father Bachansky. We've spoken a couple of times before, and we wanted to have you on the show to talk a little bit more about how accompaniment, which has been a major theme of Pope Francis's pontificate, can contribute not only to the lives of the people you minister to, but to anyone regardless of their attraction. We see instances of accompaniment in Christ's public ministry, and I'm sure you've had experience with that in your own ministry. Can you talk a little bit about how Christ accompanies others in the gospel and how that helps us better understand the concept of accompaniment? Yeah, you're right. Uh, Accompaniment is certainly becoming more and more part of our conversation in terms of pastoral ministry, thanks in large part to Pope Francis. In fact, the first time that we see this come across in an interview is when he's talking about people who experience same-sex attraction. He was, uh, this was September of 2013, so a few months after he was elected Pope, Father Antonio Spadaro published an interview with him. Uh, The English title was A Big Heart Open to God. And so Father Spadaro asked him about people who experience same-sex attraction about some comments that he had made in a previous interview. And Pope Francis related a story of having, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires, having received a letter from a man who identified as gay and asked him, Archbishop, do you accept or reject me? Does the church accept or reject me? And so Pope Francis said he wrote back to the man and and, and said, well, the, the real question is, does God accept the son that he has created in you or does he reject you? And of course, God is always accepting accepting us, always receiving us. And then he reflects on that. He he says, in life, God accompanies persons. Uh, And here we enter into the mystery of the human being. God accompanies persons and we must accompany them starting from their situation. We must accompany them with mercy. When we talk about accompaniment, it's not a moment, it's a journey, if you will. It's a long-term commitment to somebody. And it starts with encountering them in the midst of their daily lives, listening as they tell their own story, rather than trying to decide ahead of time what their story must be or where they must be suffering or how they must be thinking. Taking their story seriously and then helping them to see their own story in light of the bigger story of of our redemption in Christ. So I think if we look at the gospel, I think the best example of this is probably the, the road to Emmaus. Here you encounter two disciples of the Lord who are just distraught at the events of Good Friday. And through Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, they they were still trying to deal with what they had seen and what had happened. And the Lord encounters them while they're still upset. The Lord encounters them in the midst of their questions and their pain. And the way that he approaches them is kind of remarkable. Um, He doesn't just walk right up to them and say, hello, it's me. Uh, I'm risen. Uh, Everything's fine. You've got no problems anymore. Instead, he walks along along with them until they kind of notice that this stranger, as far as they know, has been walking along and kind of eavesdropping on them. They probably look at him and he says to them, first time he speaks, he says, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they look at him and and they say, well, everything that's been going on, everything that happened in Jerusalem the last couple of days. And uh, the Lord Of course, he knows what they're talking about, but in order to draw them out, in order to engage with them, he he asks another question. Well, what sort of things? 
And at this point, one of them, his name is Cleophas. He just lets everything out. He says, how can you, are you the only person that doesn't know what's going on? How can you possibly not know what happened? Everything that happened with Jesus of Nazareth. We followed him. We were his disciples. We left everything to follow him. We thought he was the Messiah. We came to Jerusalem. They, they welcomed him on, on uh, the first day of the week with, with shouts of acclamation. And we thought this was all going to come to fulfillment. And then they arrested him and his own apostles betrayed him. And they tortured him and they killed him. And now he's dead and we don't know what to do and everything's falling apart and everything that we thought we knew is wrong and everything that we thought was going to happen happened the opposite and and now as if that wasn't bad enough some women went to the tomb this morning and his body's gone and we don't know where it is and they said they saw angels but we don't know what to believe and he just kind of pours it all out on them and the lord doesn't react harshly to that he takes it he takes it into his own sacred heart and he lets cleophas talk and he lets him kind of share all of those wounds and those doubts and fears that he's got in his heart. That's a good point because, you know, a lot of times when we hear the gospel proclaimed or we read it ourselves, we assume, oh, that's just the way it had to happen. It was inevitable and we just mm -hmm. treat it as a given. But I especially don't consider sometimes, oh, it could have happened otherwise. Jesus could have said, you idiots, I told mm -hmm. you I was going to rise after three days. It's right. Like, now, I mean, he he does kind of, <laughs> he says, well, how can you be so slow to believe? Don't you remember when he said to us that this was going to happen? In other words, and I think, you know, you can really only accuse somebody of having little faith if you are the son of God. So how do we might put that would be, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I, I think there's more to the story, right? Do you remember when he told us this? Do you remember when he explained the prophecies in, in the law and in, and in the Psalms and in the writings of the prophets? Do you want to, do you want to talk about those things? Should we, should we kind of go through that again? And so what is he doing? He's identifying himself with them, right? As far as they still don't recognize him as Jesus, but you know, he's identified himself with them as like a fellow disciple. He heard the words of the Lord as well, right? He's on the same road as them. He's looking at the same reality, but he's looking at it differently because he sees that there's more to the story than just the pain in Cleophas's heart. And so he walks through it with them step by step from the beginning. If you if we want to go through this and just start at square, that's fine. Let's talk about everything. And he unfolds it for them. And, and I'm sure as he's doing that, um, you know, he's he's helping them to make connections between what their expectations were and what God's plan was and to see how it all fits together. So that the end result of that is that they say to one another that night, our hearts were burning within us as he walked with us and open the scriptures to us, right? So the Lord, he meets them where they are. He walks along their path with them, identifying with them. And then he opens the scriptures and leads them to a deeper understanding. I think ultimately that's what we have to do, whether it's a person who's uh, experiencing same-sex attraction or who's one of, whose loved one is identifying as LGBT, whether it's somebody who's, who's suffering from an illness or struggling with, with temptation or dealing with any kind of anxiety or fear or doubt, you know, always we, we encounter them where they are with compassion, uh, give them a chance to tell their story, and then if we can, explain what we see in the gospel, in the word of God, that will kind of fill in the rest of the story and put their, their struggle or their suffering in context and allow them to give it to the Lord and receive his grace. So that all, that all sounds pretty familiar. I, I think a lot of us have experienced something similar in 
receiving ministry in our own parishes or from our own college chaplains or wherever the church has served us in our own lives. What in a nutshell would you say is sort of specific or particular encourages ministry that distinguishes it from other particular ministries in the church beyond just serving people with same-sex attraction? Well, I think your your point is a good one. There are lots of ways that the church gathers people together and accompanies us, starting from each of our own situations. You know, there's there's the kind of large scale gathering of the the parish at Sunday Mass, but then most parishes will have groups that serve different demographics. You've got you know the young mothers group and the seniors group and the youth group, the Knights of Columbus and the the Bible study and the the men's group that meets after the early mass on Fridays and all different groups. And and they're all doing kind of the same thing, praying together, sharing scripture, sharing their experience of the Lord and, and of their vocation. And as they're doing that, you know, their conversations are going to be distinct based on the experience that they share together, right? It's important if they're going to be able to really grow in holiness and grow in understanding the Lord's will, that they're able to talk about every part of their life. And it's just natural that it's easier to talk about very personal things and very difficult things when you know that there's some common uh, thread among the people who are listening. I don't have to start from the beginning and explain everything. They know what I'm talking about. I don't have to worry about how people are going to react, whether they're going to be able to handle it. You know, To know that there's that common bond that comes from shared experience that can develop into real friendship just makes it a whole lot easier to, to get real and to, to talk about important things. So I think in a its origins and in the way that we're, we try to carry on our mission today, courage is very much like that in the sense that the thing that binds people together, that this experience of same-sex attraction in, in the case of our courage groups or the experience of having a loved one who is identifying as, as LGBT, maybe away from practicing the faith, which is the shared experience of the members of our encourage groups for parents and siblings and spouses. You know, to know that 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 thing that w- that kind of can take center stage in daily thoughts and plans and choices and struggles, that that is what everybody shares in common, just makes it so much easier to talk about all the, the other parts of life, right? You know, I, ha- I have a, a group that, that meets, it's primarily younger folks, and we meet online. And one of the members of the group said, I wasn't sure I was going to come to this group because I thought, what's the point of a bunch of gay guys sitting around talking about being gay? He said, and and then I realized, well, because that experience of same-sex attraction is what we all have in common, we don't have to talk about it all the time. We can just talk about everything else, but we can talk about everything else without having to watch our language, without having to worry, you know, is somebody going to understand if I bring this up or this aspect of it into the conversation? Are they going to be accepting of this part of my experience? We just kind of know that that's a given and therefore everybody's kind of at ease and, and more comfortable in sharing. So I hope that that's true for all of our members that knowing that they have that shared experience, they're able to share the rest of their lives in a more comfortable way. Yeah, and I think a lot of your uh, your member testimonies, which we'll link to in the episode notes, bear witness to that. I think Courage has been adding pretty recently that you've been adding a lot more member testimonies. 
We have, yeah, we had a, this is our 40th anniversary year. So we have a project called 40 Faces of Courage. And so modeled on the Humans of New York website, just a photograph of, of our members and our chaplains and a little paragraph describing part of their experience. Kind of springing off from that, we're getting ready in March, actually on the Feast of St. Joseph on, on March 19th, to launch a new blog as part of our website called The Upper Room, where Courage and Encourage members and chaplains are going to share their stories in a more complete way, focusing really on kind of that the turning points that in their lives, you know, where they encountered God's grace or embraced God's plan for them. And we'll at, at first probably have those posted about twice a month. And we hope that continues for a long time. Our, our founding director, Father Harvey, used to say our best ambassadors are our members who are able to share their stories. And so we're doing uh, a lot to make our members more comfortable in sharing their stories and, and make their stories more accessible to a wider audience. Because I think that's how most of us were drawn to the Lord by an encounter with someone whom we could relate to because our experience is somewhat similar to theirs who can share, right, this is what the Lord has done in my life. He can do it in yours as well. That's great. So 40 Faces of Courage and The Upper Room. Mm-hmm. Right. They're both accessible from our main website, which is couragerc.org. And we'll have a link to that in the episode notes as well. Thank you. So switching gears a little bit I imagine it can be difficult, as it is for a lot of other ministries in the church, to draw or attract people to just come in the door, to find out what it's all about, and to overcome one or more of a variety of fears or obstacles that they may be facing. So how have you seen that take place? Yeah, it happens in different ways in that regard. I mean, we, we've done a lot in recent years to kind of beef up our social media strategy and, and just to get people aware that courage is out there for them, you know. And so a great team here at the office who produces social media, both English and Spanish, sharing quotes from the saints and from the teachings of the church, just to make people more familiar with the name Courage International. And then they can click on the social media and get linked back to our website. A lot of it is word of mouth, members inviting other people that they know to come and check it out or someone who's heard about our postulate or heard heard me talk about it you know sharing it with a loved one one of the the, the things that I do uh, although it's been kind of on on hiatus during lockdown times is to travel to speak to priests and other people in ministry uh, in their dioceses for continuing formation to let them know you know here's what the church teaches here's how we've learned to communicate it in a compassionate way here's some things to keep in mind when you meet people in your parish or your school or in institution. You know, Pope Francis is fond of saying that the church is a field hospital, right? A battlefield hospital. And so courage is kind of a hospital tent pretty far behind the lines. But, you know, people, priests and, and deacons and others and in parish ministry and schools, they're the ones doing pastoral triage and spiritual first aid. They're the ones that are encountering people in the moment when they're ready to encounter the Lord. And, and so the most that we can do to form them for their ministry, then we're kind of multiplying our reach and increasingly people come to Courage because a priest that they talked to in confession or met in their parish or somebody else that they were in contact with had heard our presentation and suggested that they come. You know, I, I think in terms of getting people to consider the apostolate, I mean, first we have to extend that invitation that the Lord gives to us to to make that choice, which seems very radical, almost impossible in today's world to to live chastely. The world does not support that choice, and many, sadly, many people in the church don't necessarily support that choice or the teaching that underlies it. But we shouldn't get discouraged, even if it seems like we're not successful right away. You know, I'm thinking of the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus 
Jesus full of enthusiasm and desire for holiness. And Jesus didn't see him and call him. This man ran up to Jesus, the gospel says, and says, good teacher, what must I do to enter eternal life? And so the Lord gives him a pretty simple, like basic answer at first. He says, well, uh, you call me good. You know that what God wants and God is good. Keep the commandment. And I think there's more than a few people who would say, cool, I'm covered then and just kind of walk away. The young man wasn't satisfied with that. He, he asked for more. He said, right, I've, I've kept all the commandments since I was a little kid. There's got to be something more for me, is you know, basically what's behind his question. What, what must I do? And so this is when the Lord says to him, well, if you wish to be perfect, you personally are lacking one thing. You have to go and sell everything that you have and give it away, give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And we, we realized that's a lot different than the first answer, which was keep the commandments. And so we remember how the story ends in the gospel. The man, rich young man walks away sad because he has many possessions. Now, the thing about that story is that it doesn't ever say that he never came back. It doesn't say that he stayed away. And I think there's room to to imagine that this young man, although when he first encountered this admittedly radical invitation, this huge sacrifice that, that the Lord was asking him to make, he walked away unable to answer it right away. But maybe he thought about it, prayed with it, talked to friends, probably went home and vented to some of his friends. I went to see the rabbi and, you know, I, I all I wanted to do was follow him. And he told me I had to do this this crazy thing, like give everything away. And maybe he had a friend who said, well, do you think you should try it? <laughs> you know, what do you think about that? And maybe he thought about it and prayed with it. And, and in a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, he was able to come back having given everything away and, and become a disciple. And personally, I mean, I don't have any patristic writings or, or church documents to back me up on this, but personally, I like to think that the rich young man came back and not only did he become a disciple, but became an evangelist. And, and in fact, St. Mark, the evangelist. When Mark tells this story, he includes a line, and he often does this, he includes a line that Matthew and Luke don't pick up on, even though a lot of scholars think that Mark was writing first and Matthew and Luke would have, would have read Mark's gospel. They don't include this line. But Mark says that second answer, you know, when Jesus says, you lack one thing, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. Before he, he relates Jesus' words, he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, if you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have, et cetera. And to my mind, that has to be from an eyewitness. You know, I mean, how do you write that sentence unless you received that look of love? And so what happened in that encounter? The rich young man knew that he was seen by Jesus, that he was known by Jesus. And ultimately, that's all anybody really wants, right, is to be seen and, and known and accepted and loved. He, he knew he was loved by Jesus. And that awareness that he was seen and known and loved, and it's out of love and out of knowing this man and really understanding who he was that Jesus extended that invitation, I think holds on a lot of hope that he was able to accept it. And St. John Bosco in the 1880s, was he wrote a letter to teachers and he said, it's not enough for us to love the children. They must know that they are loved. And when people know that they are loved, he went on, they're able to do things that they wouldn't really be interested in doing left to their own inclinations. But if they perceive it as an, as an invitation made in love and knowledge, then they'll be more accepting.
So anybody in ministry, whether they're talking about ministry to people experiencing same-sex attraction or pro-life ministry or catechetical ministry or, or anything, I think, you know, we really have to push back against that temptation of the devil to, to focus on numbers, to focus on results, um, to read, you know, someone's difficulty with accepting as a rejection and really just hold out hope, stay in contact with people that we care about, give them reasons to trust us and, and to trust us to lead them to the Lord. And then pray that that in time they're able to recognize his love for them and recognize the sacrifice that they're called to make as as an invitation not as an imposition and to respond with generous hearts i'm going to ask this anyway although i think you already unpacked a lot of this in your previous answers but i still want to ask is there wisdom from courage's ministry that you would want everyone to know regardless of attraction yeah. I mean, first of all, yeah, I've been involved with courage for half of my priesthood and a quarter of my life at this point. And it's, it's such a privilege for me to just encounter people who are ready to share their stories and to ask for this kind of accompaniment. And I think the thing that I've learned is not to be afraid to really enter into someone else's life and the way they share their heart, the way they share their, their story. It can seem daunting sometimes to think, well, I don't know how to understand this person. Their experience is different from mine. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to cause any hurt or offense. And I think that's why a lot of times we stay silent, whether we're talking about ministry or talking to friends or, or family members uh, about anything, really. You know, we, we, we don't speak up when we should or we don't share what we could share, even, even when we feel like drawn to that, we get nervous about it. And I think the more that our members share their lives with us, and with each other, the more we're able to appreciate just how how real God's grace is when people cooperate with it, what amazing things uh, can be done and, you know, what, uh, what kind of transformations can take place, how strong a, a human being is when they let God be their strength, how courageous a person can be when they're relying totally on the Lord. Yeah, I think what, what this ministry convinces me and a lot of my fellow chaplains on a regular basis is, you know, we mustn't underestimate what God can do and what human beings can can do when they cooperate with God's plan. And uh, that we have to continue to hope always for God's plan to be accomplished, for grace to work, for people to hear the, the call of the Lord and to turn back to Him and, and never lose that that willingness to keep with somebody, to keep, to stay close to them. You know, the, Pope Francis is very fond of saying that God never tires of showing us mercy. There's never a time when God says, you've had your last chance and you know I've got no more mercy, no more patience with you, we're done. And that's certainly true of God, but he wants it to be true of all of us as his children and disciples as well, that we mustn't tire of being compassionate and merciful towards one another because God has been so compassionate and merciful towards us. And that when we enter into this kind of encounter and accompaniment, that it, it, it'll build us up as much as it will allow us to serve a brother or sister in need. Brother Bachansky, thank you for coming on and spending some time with us, and we hope to talk to you again real soon. I'd be delighted. Thanks very much. We are back to start our book series on Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, revised and expanded edition by Dr. Edward Sri, and uh, we are welcoming back Kara Eschbach. Hello, hello. So we are going to be going through this book for the next seven months. We won't be doing it every episode, we'll be doing it every other episode instead. 
Just like episode 59, we discussed My Neighbor Totoro. In this episode 60, we're going to do the first part of Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. And then next episode, we're not going to. We're going to do another movie. We're going to do Soul from Pixar, in case anybody's interested. And then in episode 62, we're going to do the second part of our book series, and then off for 63, and then back on for 64, and so on. So we'll be discussing approximately two chapters each time, which is enough for you all at home to read in the span of roughly a month. So you have no excuse not to follow along with us. It's a pretty quick read. That's the, that's the reason why we did this one and not Love and Responsibility. <laughs> that, and that's a good point. This book is a practical application from Dr. Edwards Tree of Love and Responsibility, a book written by the eventual Pope John Paul II in 1960, while he was a priest and professor at the Catholic University of Lublin. Love and Responsibility was in many ways the beginning of the work that he would more notably continue in the Theology of the Body Catechesis, and Dr. Sri has helpfully condensed that into Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, which are his more practical and accessible applications of John Paul II's writing. And just one note, before you tweet at us, we know that he wasn't John Paul II while he wrote Love and Responsibility, but for simplicity's sake, we're going to refer to him by his papal name. It's just simpler. I don't think anybody wants to hear seven episodes of either of us trying to say Wotiwa over and over again. Yeah, we, we're, we're not afraid of, uh, no, we, we are afraid of the Polish language here. <laughs> Neither of us are Poles. I have some good friends who are Polish, and they've told me I'm a terrible pronouncer of Polish words. My life is complicated enough trying to get people to pronounce Bonapane. <laughs> also something I avoid. Good friend is much easier. <laughs> Which is perfectly acceptable. I don't expect anybody to get my last name right. That's totally fine. If they're Italian speakers and they can do it, great. If not, that's fine too. Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love is written by Dr. Edward Sri, who is a theologian and author and speaker who appears regularly on EWTN. He helped found Focus with Curtis Martin and is a professor at the Augustine Institute. He has written several books aside from the one that we are going to be discussing and is also the host of the acclaimed film series Symbolon, The Catholic Faith Explained. When it comes to the book we'll be reading, Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, Kara is much more experienced with it than I am. I'm going through my first read of this, but Kara has read through this book many times before. So Kara, why don't you uh, give us a little primer on it? As Good Bread mentioned, I actually helped out in New York City about a decade ago, starting a discussion group with people who would go through Edward Sree's book, which was actually based on a series of articles that he wrote based on uh, JP2's Love and Responsibility. And we used it as a way to jump off and just make it a more accessible discussion. So the thing that we really liked about it and why Andrew and I were figuring out what we should read for a book, I suggested this one, is because he does a really nice job of condensing down these sort of philosophical lofty ideas that JP2 presents in Love and Responsibility and makes it much more accessible to the everyday lay reader. Like I said, they were articles that were online. And so you know, they're something that you should be able to read in a relatively quick sitting, especially an individual chapter. So the thing that I like about this book too, and particularly the discussion we're going to have today, is that I think it does a really nice job of laying the groundwork for really practical discussions and reflections on how these topics actually impact us in our daily life. So we read through the introduction, chapter one and chapter two of the revised and expanded edition. Uh, and for those of you at home, if you're curious, the 
New edition has 14 chapters, the original edition has 12. I'm just going to run through really quickly some of the practical issues that Love and Responsibility and by extension this book are going to cover. So buckle up. Friendship, attraction, relationships, men and women, love, the emotions, sexuality, marriage, chastity. That is a ton, and it's why this introduction starts out with a quote, this is dangerous, don't let my wife see this, <laughs> which is how one of the author's friends characterized this book and the contents of this teaching. So yeah, let's dive right in. So chapter one, which let's take each of the chapters in turn, and we can have a bit of a discussion about each one. So chapter one is really framing up what are the types of friendships that we have, and then it's most centrally concerned with what is a virtuous friendship. So the way that Sri frames it up is that there are basically three types of friendship. He says there's first the friendship of utility, which is we have some sort of transactional nature. That might be somebody you do business with who you also casually have conversations. The real nature of your friendship is that you have a business transaction to do. The friendship part of it is totally incidental and would fall away if you didn't have a business relationship to maintain. The second is a pleasant friendship, which are more like friendships of convenience. You happen to be friends because you're in the same place. Maybe you are on a soccer team together or uh, you know, maybe it happens to be a coworker, And so you see each other every day or you see each other frequently and you go out and you maybe have a drink or something, but you're not having deep discussion or once you're done with the activity, you w may not pick that friendship up again. It might be, oh, I haven't seen that person in a long time, and that doesn't bother you. The third category of friendship that he talks about are virtuous friendships, which are deep and meaningful and are pointing you towards something greater and also are friendships oriented towards the good of the other person, not simply the good of yourself. Even if it's mutually useful to you, a virtuous friendship is actually oriented towards the other person and their good. And a friendship of utility is not usually a bad thing. We have lots of friendships of utility just in going about our lives. It's okay to do business and to be friends with the person who does your dry cleaning insofar as you see each other. That's not a bad thing, but it's just not enough for human living. The chapter does a good job of pointing out that, you know, if you only have friends in the first two categories, you probably are feeling a little empty and you realize that you just have people around you and not true and deep friendships. And I think that's what he's trying to draw out here. It's interesting, too, I realize he doesn't get really into all of the nuances of friendship here, but one of the things that did strike me in reading this and just sort of remembering some of my own experiences with friendship, sometimes those first two categories of friendships can lead to a virtuous friendship. Um, so I don't want people to sort of walk away from this feeling like they're putting down the other two categories. Because I know, so I worked in finance many years ago, and I had a coworker who grew up without any faith. And she knew I was Catholic. And she started dating a guy who's Catholic. And she asked me to like go out for coffee once. And she was like, hey, I'm dating this guy. And he won't sleep with me before we get married. Can you like explain this weird Catholic thing to me? And it was an interesting sort of crossing the chasm of our friendship that we went from work friends to friend friends. She's asking my advice about her relationship and we're talking about deeper meaning in life. And it was at least like hinting towards a virtuous friendship, even if it wasn't now we're best friends for life. Again, he doesn't really like get into it. It's a short chapter, but I do think that it's good to remember that some of these other categories of friendships are just the entree point to something that could be a more virtuous friendship if we allow 
allow it to be. Right. And this threefold distinction of friendship, which he is adapting from Aristotle, is really useful for setting up the major principle presented in the first chapter, which Edward Sree calls the personalist principle. And he actually quotes from Love and Responsibility at this point. A person must not be merely the means to an end for another person. We should never treat people in our lives as mere instruments for achieving our own purposes. And that now we start to get into distinguishing good from bad friendships of utility. That word merely is doing a lot of work there, saying it's okay if you're of use to somebody else as long as that's not the extent of it, because that cheats you of your dignity. This is why the personalist principle matters so much. Human beings have free will and are capable of self-determination. It distinguishes us from the animal world and in the world as a whole. The thoughts that I have and the choices that I make are totally unique to me and cannot be experienced by anybody else. Even if you and I were to, to agree to a proposition, there's a difference between the proposition as you hold it and the proposition as I hold it, even if it's the same one, because we bring all of our unique experiences, our unique subjectivity, and our unique intellectual capacities to that judgment when we make it. And so we submit that to whatever it is that we agree with. So we have to respect that distinctiveness in the world. If we don't, we violate something very unique, which is of great dignity, even sacred. And that's the nature of an individual human being as a rational being. And that's what this personalist principle is designed to help protect and defend. Every person is by nature capable of determining his or her aims. Anyone who treats a person as the means to an end does violence to the very essence of the other, to what constitutes its natural right. So that's the personalist principle in chapter one. We should probably move out of chapter two, huh? Okay, so then Sri moves on to chapter two, which is really talking about the relationships between all people, but I think in particular, the relationship between men and women. And he spends a lot of time talking about the idea of relationships of use, sort of what we were talking about before in chapter one, the really negative side of those friendships of utility, where it's mutual using. And as long as you both, you know, understand the terms, and you are okay with the fact that you're using each other, i.e. you are are having sex and you both understand that it's just for pleasure and you both are enjoying it, then that's fine. He's saying that that is the principle that most people operate under, but which the church and certainly JP2 and Love and Responsibility reject primarily because it violates that personalist principle that Andrew was talking about before, which is that, you know, you're not willing the good of the other person and fundamentally a relationship of use at some point will always break down such that one person is no longer getting the pleasure that they thought they were out of it or somebody wants something more than the other one can give and the relationship fundamentally has to break down. And so this chapter really explores what it is about a relationship of virtue and of mutual self-giving and of mutual respect that is categorically different from those typical relationships of use. I'll kick it back to you. Good, Brad, did you have any particular things that hit you about this chapter? So the first time I read the 
discussion question number five, which is another quote from Love and Responsibility. If I treat someone else as a means and a tool in relation to myself, I cannot help regarding myself in the same light. How is this so? That was very confusing to me. I did not understand what JP2 was saying there. And as is often the case with his writing style translated into English, it takes a few times before you understand what he's saying. And then once I got it, it really struck me and it sort of went back to something that Dr. Sri says on page 15 about what happens to your own self-estimation when you accept that you will use somebody else is that you implicitly accept being used yourself, which is <laughs> where we really part ways with the golden rule. The golden rule being do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What JP2 is basically saying here is if you do it to others, you will let others do it to you. So the golden rule kind of has a copper lining there, uh, which we need to be aware of. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that quote because I had also picked that quote out, not from the questions, but just like in the text. It really struck me because so I'm engaged in getting married in a couple of weeks and I have been reading the readings to pick a reading for our wedding mass. And one of the readings is the classic one from Ephesians, which people often, you know, give a little side eye that, you know, women be subordinate to your husband. But what's interesting about that reading is that it also says a lot about what men should be doing. And one of the things that it says is, so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh. And I feel like it kind of is similar sentiment here of you should love yourself just out of a sense of you are made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore you should respect yourself. Obviously, we know that's not true in the real world for a lot of people, but you should respect yourself, and therefore you should, in a proper relationship and marriage, afford that same respect to the other person. And I feel like, you know, this, what JP2 is talking about here is sort of the mirror image of that. If you hate yourself, you're going to treat others in a way that is hateful. And I feel like, yeah, using other people means that there's like something about your own relationship with yourself that's not quite right. It's so funny that we think in cultural conversations about these sort of things. We can separate personal morality from interpersonal morality. We can mm -hmm. say, well, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, I can do whatever I want. And the more we talk about it in this context, the more connections we see between these two realms of morality and how it's really impossible to separate the two. If I don't have a high opinion of myself, I'm not going to be able to treat others in a way that they deserve to be treated. If I use other people, I'm going to let myself be used. It's sort of like if you've ever done any traveling in a culture where in like marketplaces, haggling and bargaining is is accepted and understood more than it is here. The mentality is you both enter into this transaction understanding that the other person is going to try and move you in the wrong value direction. Mm -hmm. And Westerners, or at least Americans who travel, will sometimes be uncomfortable with this because they're uncomfortable telling another person that their product is worthless than mm -hmm. the posted price. It's the same thing here. When we enter into a relationship of use, not just a friendship of utility, but a utilitarian relationship, we are haggling against against ourselves because we're saying, well, this person is of so little value that I can use them. I'm in a relationship with that person. Therefore, I am of a similar value and I can be used. The prevalence of that sort of mentality says a lot about cultural attitudes towards relationships in general, that we don't necessarily know 
how to care about a person for their own sake. Even if we might outwardly purport to care about another person for their own sake, it can be very easy to still expect something in return for whatever you're putting into the relationship. It can be very easy to condition your relationship on getting that thing out of the other person. Do you have an example of what you're thinking of when you say that? I have one very overt example, and I can probably think of another one <laughs> that's not, <laughs> but I don't have one at the top of my head. So while I'm trying to think of that one, I'll give you the overt example. I'm just sort of curious like, to connect the dots in my own mind. This discussion of relationships of utility reminded me of an article I read in the New York Post a while ago from controversial former dating columnist Julia Allison, who wrote an article about how sex in the city ruined her life. Oh, I remember that article. <laughs> she tells her kind of whole life story, how she grew up idolizing the characters the show Sex in the City and wanted to be just like them. She moved to New York to become a columnist and she talked about the way her life was. And by all outward appearances, it was exactly what she wanted it to be. But there was a financial cost that mirrored the psychological cost. When that paper finally hired me, I made $50 per weekly column. I later moved on to insert publication here where I made $750 a week. A huge improvement, but still not enough to buy Manolo's. Do you know what yeah. that is? Manolo Blahniks are a type of very high-end shoe. <laughs> Did I say it? Manolo's, I guess. Manolo's, yeah. But still not enough to buy Manolo's and barely enough to afford the $2,500 rent for my 400-square-foot apartment in Hell's Kitchen. Holy cow. That was that was over 10 years ago, too. I lived on food. Also, what me. is a writer doing having a studio to herself, please? We all have roommates. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> this is the real key of what you're saying. I lived on food bought for me on dates and the occasional bodega tuna sandwich. It doesn't get more utilitarian than that, folks. Her oh, relationships yeah. were the source of her most basic sustenance. And, and I don't mean this to disparage her. I mean this to illustrate what she is trying to do in the article, how miserable that sort of existence is and how conditional that food bought on dates was because the dates were buying the food for her with certain expectations which she may or may not have been fulfilling. Um, so that's the overt That's the overt example. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think it also speaks to a certain toxicity in the dating market, if you will. I hate using yeah. the term market, but I remember at my very first job, I was working in finance, so had a lot of male colleagues. And I think it was right around the time that Tinder came out. And I decided to go on Tinder to see what it was all about. So I get, you know, a date and I ended up, I was like, I don't really want to go on this and telling my coworkers about it. And they were like, well, whatever, just go and get your free meal and bail. I value my own time more than I need a free meal. Also, I have a job. I can pay for a meal. I'm okay. <laughs> it was a very strange, and I mean, these guys basically were telling me that what they expect is that even if a woman isn't interested in me, I expect her to go on a date with me and basically use me for a meal and an hour of maybe fun conversation. And it just really highlighted for me how sad the dating world was at that time, especially you know in New York City, probably not this star example of anywhere to be, but I think it's become more pervasive, that idea that, well, yeah, you know, go get a meal or the girl's just, you know, looking for a guy to take her out for the night, which is sad both for her and for him. Yeah, hey, at least 
we're not only expecting to use women, and at least it seems some men are acceptable with also being used and they're not applying an unequal standard here. No, Andrew, you're taking the wrong moral away from this book right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay if we use people as long as we use men and women equally. (laughs) Uh, I think I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. (laughs) But anyway, so much for Sex in the City. Let's see. Okay, can I think of a maybe better example and one that's not related to sex? What was I trying to say? Oh, conditioning a relationship on use. I'm going to buy a gift for my hypothetical son. I'm going to buy him baseball tickets in a world where the pandemic isn't affecting baseball attendance. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want my son to talk to me and I want him to, because he is a hypothetical moody teenager, I want him to appreciate me. Are you also a hypothetical midlife crisis man in this scenario? Yes, yes, I'm a hypothetical midlife crisis man in this scenario. And so I buy him these tickets and he begrudgingly accepts to go to the game with me, but he just doesn't really talk beyond moody teenager stuff. He'd rather be, I don't know, playing Minecraft, let's assume. And I have two choices. And in these choices, I determine whether or not my actions have been utilitarian. I can either get very frustrated with him and take my anger out on him for not being grateful for this thing that I've done for him, which he didn't ask me to do, in which case I have conditioned our relationship on his expressing appreciation for me. Mm. And in which case I have done this, I've given him this gift for utilitarian purpose. I want to get something out of it. Or even though it didn't go the way I wanted, I can still accept it and try to raise him right. And whichever way is best slowly try to draw him out of that sort of antisocial behavior and that ungrateful behavior, which isn't good for him, but it's not for the sake of me feeling appreciated. It's for the sake of helping my son be a more grateful person who's better at doing relationships. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the relationship, even though I would have liked to see some appreciation for buying hypothetical baseball tickets, if it doesn't pan out, I'm still okay. And I'm still able to love my son, hypothetically speaking, of course. The hypothetical son can hypothetically love you back. That's what I mean by conditioning a relationship along utilitarian lines. Okay, I think that's helpful. We see this cultural understanding of relationships actually come out in a recent Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, putting aside the details in the context of the case and withholding from evaluating the court's decision. Justice Anthony Kennedy, in his majority opinion, expressed this understanding of marital relationships, which isn't his, but reflects a commonly held cultural attitude and understanding of marriage, which still isn't really truly loving as we'll see later on when we get deeper into this book. Choices about marriage shape an individual's destiny. As the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has explained, because it fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity, civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. The nature of marriage is that, through its enduring bond, Two persons, together, can find other freedoms, such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. This is true for all persons, whatever their sexual orientation. There is dignity in the bond between two men or two women who seek to marry and in their autonomy to make such profound choices. Marriage is a coming together, for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, A harmony in living, not political faiths. A bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Yet it is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. As good as this quote sounds, 
there is still an issue with its core definition of marriage, that through its enduring bond, two persons together can find other freedoms such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. Justice Kennedy still isn't even claiming that it's love, because the relationship is still conditioned on the two persons individually, albeit in a partnership, finding other freedoms among which may be expression, intimacy, and spirituality, but don't really require them finding it in the same instance, which may be expression, intimacy, and spirituality, or it may be other freedoms that they have determined. But there's still an implicit understanding that the relationship lasts only as long as they can find those freedoms, whatever those freedoms are. So if either one of the so-called spouses in this definition should be unwilling or unable to help the other one find those freedoms, then the relationship ends, regardless of the sex of the spouses, which is why this version of marriage is only hopefully enduring and not essentially enduring. In contrast to actual married love, in which I remain married and committed to loving my hypothetical wife, even if she should be unable to provide me the occasion to find expression, intimacy, and spirituality. If, for example, she should get in a car accident and be rendered in a persistent vegetative state. That's why marriage endures in sickness and in health, for better or worse, as long as they both shall live. So even here, for as good a description as this is of some kinds of human relationships, it isn't sufficient to define human love over and above a relationship conditioned on utility. And in future episodes, as we get deeper into this book, we'll come back to this quote because it is very important for determining our contemporary cultural understanding of marriage. So just one more thing that I think is worth talking about from chapter two, it's kind of under that section, it's called loving or enjoying. And I think that Sri gets more into this later in the book, I think it might be in the next chapter, basically the idea between our animal instincts and impulses versus our free will and intellect. It's connected to that idea of use versus love. He goes on for a couple of pages here, but I personally found the example, an interesting one about the fact that we might be attracted to somebody, we could even use somebody for their attractiveness. Oh, I like to be around them because they're pretty to look at, or, um, you know, he's really funny and I just enjoy it. But there's a fine line between enjoying that person for higher ends, which would be to get to know them or willing their good again, versus using them. Oh, I, I like to spend time with them because they're nice to look at. And that's the only reason I'm spending time with them. The key thing that I thought was a good point that he draws out here is just the fact that we have free will. We're not animals who have to only follow our instincts. And then particularly in sexual relationships, the idea that we have the ability to choose how we treat other people. And even if we are initially attracted, we can choose what we focus on and what we do with that attraction. Yeah, and to your point, animals aren't free to root their attraction in the love of another being outside themselves. They're just reacting mm. reflexively to the attraction they feel. If it can be characterized as love at all, what they love is just the sense experience that is prompting that impulse. We can choose to go that route too, but we have the choice to do something greater, which they don't, which is to root that attraction in something deeper, the real yeah. person 
who is the source of that attraction. And we can let that love outlast the attraction even, so that instead of just falling in love with scenery for however long it's around, we can love the person in season and out for better or worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember um, I gave a talk to some high schoolers way back in the day, and I had somebody push back on me on the idea of attraction. And basically, you know, the messaging, I think, in a lot of the culture is that you have sexual urges. And so we can't expect kids to control themselves which my pushback to the and it was of course a young man in at this talk and what I told him was you know I I think that we teach kids how to do that all the time this guy was ostensibly on a sports team of some kind and when you have to wake up early to go to practice because that's the thing that you do to train your body to be better in a sport you're training yourself how to respond to a physical impulse which is I want to stay in bed and you're training yourself to get up because you know that's what's good for you and it seems sort of crazy to me that we essentially teach kids that when it comes to their sexual impulses that you don't have any control over it when we tell them in so many other places that you have all kinds of control over yourself. It's sort of an unrecognized ramification of the Me Too movement, too. Because the whole premise of the Me Too movement is that these powerful men who exerted pressure on mostly women to take advantage of them in a sexual way could actually help themselves. They could actually mm -hmm. restrain their impulses. And if we have to conclude that in their cases, which of course we would, because if we didn't, we would be justifying their behavior. If we have to conclude that with them we have to conclude that with everybody else and that means anybody can restrain themselves and if they do take advantage of people in a sexual way or otherwise it's because they chose to do so and they weren't a slave to their passions as is so often claimed by people just like you're saying why should the presence of mutual consent mean that a passion is restrainable or not if you can restrain yourself, you can restrain yourself whether or not the other person consents to it. If you can't restrain yourself, you can't restrain yourself no matter if the other person wants to or not. Yeah, I mean, it's a real pickle that I think that that line of thinking forces you into, right? Oh, well, you know, it's it always becomes a matter of when it's convenient for you to adhere to those principles. Right. And the choice of whether or not to adhere to those principles is, again, an impulse which you can restrain yourself from <laughs> going into. Because it's possible to love someone independent of impulse. It's possible to love someone as more than just a collection of attributes. It's possible to love a person and live in communion with them. As we'll see when we move further into Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love. And just as three ends on this point to move into the next one, we too can end. That's a good cliffhanger for the rest of the book. So next time, we will not be discussing the book, but the episode after that, we will be covering chapters three and four. So continue to follow along with us then. We will see you next time. In the meantime, Kara is getting hitched. So best wishes, Kara. Thank you. And we will see you when you get back. Thanks. Hopefully I'll be more tan. Please share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks to Alejandro Del Pozo for the music and to Fulton Sheen for our sign-off. Bye now. And God love you.